Hi, welcome to the Oz Early Ed podcast. Uh, fortnightly, hopefully, maybe more often discussion of uh, early childhood politics and policy and all things to do with early childhood education and care and young children in Australia. My name's Liam McNicholas. And my name's Lisa Bright. And this is this is our first exciting episode. We're very we're very excited to uh, to be recording our first episode. We're hopeful Lisa and I will be here probably every episode if we can uh, get together and do it. But we're hoping to have some special guests as we come forward as well. Um, and it might be worth Lisa maybe just talking a little bit about our backgrounds in early childhood. So, or I guess our qualifications to have a podcast on this topic. Um, did you want to tell everyone? Liam, a bit of I have got no qualifications <laughs> having doing a podcast on early education <laughs> and care. Somehow I kind of fell into this field about 13 years ago and for some reason I can't escape. But um, I come in as a, um, as a journalist, as an observer of the sector rather than as someone who's grown up through the sector without, you know, I have no early education qualifications. So in lots of ways I feel a bit of a fake in this kind of situation. But I also think sometimes coming from an outsider perspective gives you a different understanding of what's happening in the sector than what happens when you have been imbued in sector's traditions from your first job in the field. I think an outside perspective is very useful. Well, I have a far more boring uh, CV, so I am an early childhood professional. I'm an early childhood teacher, but I'm currently in a bit of a boring management role uh, here in Canberra. But um, Lisa and I both know each other primarily through Twitter um, and we enjoy very I think we've met face to face once. We have time. occasionally. The, 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 it's been, yes, the, there's a rumour that's happened. Uh, it's been yet to be proven to me, but um, I don't know. I get, I get a bit awkward when we meet him personally, so I much prefer this faceless uh, over the internet interaction. Is that weird? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I think uh, we both uh, very much enjoy with our different backgrounds um, sort of breaking apart, analysing, often getting depressed by the state of early childhood education in Australia. But um, I think this podcast is its its the first of its kind, I'm going to call that, in Australia. We don't think there's a dedicated podcast to this issue, so we hope... And look, you know, I think it's really wonderful that it's a podcast because as a, as a journalist, I'm really depressed that people just aren't reading as much anymore. You know, we don't seem to have time in our lives to read. But there's lots of times that you can listen to podcasts, you know, when you're driving, when you're in the shower, when you're in a boring management committee meeting. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> and can there be a better way to spend your time, Lisa, than listening to the two of us rabbiting on? I don't think so. <laughs> so. So in terms of how we're going to work moving forward, look, we're hoping to each, each episode will be, you know, roughly 20 to 30 minutes. And essentially what we're going to do is look at, you know, a couple of the big topics that are um, that have either, you know, sort of in the news or are just sort of an ongoing topic to do with early childhood education and care. We are going to have, I think, a very political advocacy bent. Us um, political? Us advocacy? Well, I mean, yeah, maybe we need to keep our names off the cover of this just to confuse people. But yes, there is inevitably going to be some podcast, some, sorry, some policy discussion. Um, but... We're hoping this will, I think well, you and I, Lisa, would both agree that the the importance of people working in early childhood to be politically ad- active and uh, be aware of the issues that are affecting um, children and young people and professionals in the space is, is critical. Yeah, and also the other thing that I'd really like to think is that people feel okay about expressing their opinions no matter what organisation they work for or 
you know, what they know or what they don't know about something. It's important to inform yourself about issues, but it's also important to remember that as early education and care professionals, you kind of know a lot about children, know what's good for them and know what's not. And the more early education care professionals take that space in a public sense and take that, you know, like say, yes, I do have expertise on what children need, then the more respected the profession becomes from outside. Absolutely. And, and as someone who is, you know, deeply embedded in a practice role in the sector, I just, my, my catchphrase is usually if we don't tell our own stories, it'll be told for us and probably be told pretty badly. So the importance of being active and engaged in that space is just, is critical. So we're going to, we'll, we'll, We'll get into the main event for today. So, Liam, just before you start on our main topics, I I think that each week we should just have a quick look at one of the weird stories that's come up (laughs) in the media, you know, over the past fortnight. And one just crossed my desk that is an absolute shocker. It's one from America, as so many of them often are. And it's about an ex-daycare owner who tied children to chairs when they were restless. She's on trial for assault of 10 children, but she says that one of the best things she did as a childcare owner was throwing a glass of water in a child's face to calm him down. Her husband thought that was really good news as well. But the one I really, really liked in it was that um, she said, you know, really the problem was that the employees, they just weren't good enough. She said... I really, you know, they're not to talk to parents because they just upset parents (laughs) unnecessarily when they talk to them. Oh, wow. Well, to be fair, I think as a parent, I probably would be pretty upset to be talking to anyone involved in that centre. Lisa, I think we've got, we've, I think the state of early childhood in America would be, is, would definitely, I think, going to be on the agenda for, for one of our future podcasts. That's, uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's not an uncommon occurrence in, the good old United States, but no, but it's a good reason to uphold regulations and to you know love the fact that we've got regulations. Love the red tape. I think we we both agree very strongly on that. That might be another topic as well. Thanks, for Lisa. That's a very good idea. Well, I think if uh, we will inevitably be coming across some other ridiculous stories, so I think we might open with that each time. But um, yeah, I'll keep to keep an eye out as well. Ones that don't depress me too much, as that one did. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. So. We're going to kick off with a very general, so we've, we've obviously said this, this podcast is going to be looking, um, you know, specifically at sort of politics and policies. We may as well start in very general terms. We've just had a very, a, we've just had the federal election. So there is a new parliament. The 45th parliament is uh, now in place. Uh, it's a very, um, I don't know what the word is, Lisa. It's a very finely balanced. <laughs> so the diplomatic version of me, if you prefer that, would be finely balanced. I quite actually, I think Lisa's version of dog's breakfast is far more accurate. So the last parliament, the Abbott Turnbull schmozzle, uh, was a very bizarre time for early childhood when there was a fairly, probably a huge amount of talk and probably separate to the National Quality Framework, the most focused in early childhood, but absolutely zero policy action in the entire three years. We've got another three years possibly, um, and God knows how many Prime Ministers ahead of us in the next three years. Oh, hopefully only one. Hopefully only one. I mean, God, let's, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, unless, uh, you know, someone very exciting can come in. Maybe Barnaby Joyce could launch a coup and join the Liberals. That would be pretty exciting. <laughs> so, Lisa, I mean, well, let's kick it off. We've got three years ahead of us. What are the big things you're sort of looking out for um, in the next few months? Well, look, obviously the main thing is um, is the Jobs for Families package, which includes all the change. It's like a, sometimes we've got to remind people about what's actually there. Well, I think like, it's worth going up with first. So for people who this is their sort of first you know, understanding of this package, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of it? So the Jobs for Families package is basically the government's response to the productivity inquiry into childcare and early children's learning that happened um, under the Abbott government. And the Jobs for Families package includes several key, th- key changes to the sector, mostly, unfortunately, to the funding of um, the sector. So it would put to, instead of having childcare benefit and childcare rebate, you'd have the one um, uh, subsidy called the childcare subsidy which will change how parents, uh, you know, like get their payments and what sort of payments they get to offset the cost of fees. Coupled with that is a number of things that people like you and I, Liam, have really objected to, like the, the um, activity test. The activity test means that only children whose parents are working or studying for at least a... Um, Oh God, I forgot the number. Is it eight hours a week minimum? I yeah, think? I think so. Yeah. Um, can get access to childcare subsidies of any sort, and then it's it's done on a graded scale of how much access you get. Yeah, this is a fundamental change because at the moment, under childcare benefit and childcare rebate, every child in Australia is eligible to at least twenty four hours a week of funded education and care. And this will just be totally removed if this package goes through. As well as that, there's some really nasty bits in it and that um, all budget-based funded services, which are are our Aboriginal MAC services and a few other services like that, will have to move on to mainstream funding. And organisations like SNAKE, the uh, peak body for Aboriginal um, children, has said that this will mean that you know a n- large number of Aboriginal children will no longer be eligible for uh, to receive funded education and care, and as well as that, that a number of the, their services will have to close. A number of Aboriginal controlled and managed services will close down. Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm tempted to spend the next. 20 minutes reiterating how cranky I am about this package. I think uh, I do want to keep this, you know, for myself, the focus on what's likely to be coming up, given that's what we said. But it is, yeah, look, it is, as as you said, Lisa, it is a very, it's a deceptively nasty, I think is probably a good word package. The more detail you look into it and how it will affect. And for me, it's a bit of a, it's a fundamental, and this is where I've had arguments with people about, well, you can sort of argue the toss on a few of the measures in terms of, the big, the big picture that people often spruik is that it's an overall three billion dollar increase in funding. Now, separate yeah, to the fact, you know what? Yeah, they would have had to increase the funding by that much. Exactly. Just through the growth of CCB and CCR. So. Yeah, and that number's a bit shaky in general, anyway. I think, and it's, it's yeah. the ch- early childhood funding is always tricky because it's a percentage of income, and it's and it's mostly you know tied to you know percentage amounts, which makes it difficult to to track an increase. But that number's shaky by itself. But separate to me is this fundamental uh, ethical concern that we are 
we are creating this split that already exists to some measure, but entrenches the split between children of family, children of worthy families accepting early childhood education. I guess if you're contributing to the economy, if you're a worker and a productive, you know, unit of society, then you get the right to access early childhood, access early childhood education and care for your child. So it creates and entrenches this really hideous and disastrous split between the right of some children to access and the and the right of other children not to and for their parents to just get a job. So that I think are the big the very big picture concerns and Look, and it might be as the as the months sort of wheel on ahead, we might circle back and do a more um, substantial look at that. But we've obviously one of, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so of, what we've got to look at is whether yeah. or not it will actually go through or not. So before the election, what happened was that it was presented to the Senate, and it was presented um, with a a, a a requirement that if the additional $3 billion was going to be invested, that the Senate had to approve cutting of some family tax benefits. The ALP and the Greens said, no, we're not going to agree to that. So it basically never got through the Senate. And I think even more insanely, it was actually, so the initial phase of the, the package was due to be rolled out in July 2017. Uh, I can't remember exactly when, but it was well before the election date. I think it was early um, much earlier, January, February this year, um, the Minister Simon Birmingham actually announced that even if they won the election, which they did, it would it, this would now not be starting until July 2018, which would be five years since they were first elected. So they were seriously contemplating and advocating for five years of, of zero policy development in that space. It was a yeah. Interestingly, the children that needed the relief <laughs> five years ago would now be in school and no longer need it. I mean, gifted labour and a tag. I mean, it is literally that five years of being a the, the, the importance of the birth to five, and they've literally said, "Well, we'll leave it for five years." So an entire cohort of children missing out on the importance of yeah. <laughs> you know high quality early education and care. It's crazy. And it, it, and when you look at one of the big reasons for the delay, it's purely because the computer systems that <laughs> you know, manage the payments need to be upgraded and sorted out. And yeah. It, to, yeah, to be fair to them, it, it's probably good that they did call correctly when the first time they could put it through. But it leaves us in a position of a bit uh, a strange policy situation where the Department of Education has to work towards as if that policy will become law with no real knowledge of if the new parliament will pass it or not. So what's your sort of reading? So, Lisa, you've probably got a better general eye and a more slightly widely read in that space than I am. There's obviously a very slightly bizarre new Senate particularly. So we have four Pauline Hanson senators. I can't believe I'm saying that and I can't believe I've had to say that for the last <laughs> several weeks. We've got Darren Hinch. God, Australia, 2016. Who'd have thought yeah. it? But um, you know, the the Senate was pretty difficult in the last uh, Parliament, and made uh, not just not just early ed policy difficult, but sort of all manner of stuff. What's your sort of view on the likelihood of this the the, the jobs of families package as it currently stands getting up getting in the new through. Parliament? Look, I think it really depends upon what else is bargained for the support of that crossbench to get it through. So essentially, although Malcolm, you know, I'm just explaining politics in a really basic way here, but although Malcolm Turnbull has got 
um, the numbers in the lower house, in the House of Representatives, to get anything through that he wants, it then has to go to the Senate before it can be made into law. So a bill, first of all, goes through the House of Reps, then it goes through the Senate. The issue is that he doesn't have the numbers in the Senate. In fact, he's got less numbers than what he had in the old Senate. <laughs> so if Labor and the Greens are to combine together to vote against something, then I, I, I've forgotten the number. Is it eight, I think, I of, think the, yeah. Yeah, of the crossbench that he's got to get to agree to something? Now, let's say he could, you know, promise to be really nasty to <laughs> foreigners and immigrants and, and that got, you know, him some um, leeway with the, um, uh, uh, with the Pauline Hanson mob. He's still got to get another four. Okay, let's say he promises Darren Hinch, whatever it is that Darren Hinch actually stands for, <laughs> and he's still got to get an, another three. That's, you know, like really hard, you know. That's hard. And it leaves sort of, so again, it's such a bizarre space, and it is, it's fiendishly complicated, and I think, and I, I remember I wrote something a while ago about the complication working against us. So advocacy in um, Australia is really split and marginalised and challenging in this space because it's so it's not a simple funding mechanism. Services aren't directly funded. It's this bizarre mishmash of essentially family welfare, which is absolutely how it's viewed by the government and something we always need to remember that uh, it makes it a very challenging and difficult space. One of the things I was going to add, and I'm, I'm always wary of this and I'm always um, an online sort of getting wrapped over the knuckles slightly for just, you know, not liking anyone or anything. But where do you think this leaves Labor? So as the opposition, so when Labor were in government, they were, you know, very successful and I give them full credit for the implementation of the national quality framework, which is, you know, a vital, a vital reform um, to... You know, Australia's early childhood education sector, though I love NQF stickers and I'd be wearing one all the time. I've always been somewhat critical that they, unfortunately, alongside that, there needed to be some structural changes to early childhood that weren't put in place. Um, now, I think Lisa Kate Ellis, who was there, and we should say as well that Simon Birmingham's the Minister for the Government, is he's continuing in that role. And although I've been challenged by some of his policy work in that space, I think it is a good thing that we're keeping the same minister. So in the last parliament, we had three oh, separate ministers for early yeah. childhood, which was a bit I'm of a nightmare. Very... We've again, uh, we're, my understanding is, although there was a, there was some, I think, changing of titles, is that Kate Ellis will continue with the responsibility in a shadow ministerial capacity for early childhood education and care. That's, that's right. And yeah. I think it's kind of good in a way that she lost the broader education portfolio. Yeah. So it gives her more you know, space to concentrate exactly on our sector. Yeah, so, so I was pretty critical, Lisa, of Labor. I think they haven't done, my, my view is they haven't done the rigorous policy work in this area. I think they're saying the right things sometimes, but I'm, what I'm not seeing from Labor as they, and the party of opposition is the, you know, the, the complete structural reform package that I think is needed. Um, and yeah, we're seeing kind and of coalition light. It isn't it's interesting because like when back with Kevin O seven, <laughs> he actually came up with a really radical plan which was based on his reading of Heckman. 
And that really impressed me that he read, you know, a, a, a Nobel Prize winning economist who thinks that early education and care is the answer to all of society's ills <laughs> and de devised a package based on that. And that was the National Quality Framework coupled with the Universal Access Program. But all we're really seeing from Labor is a bit of liberal light in yes. a way, you know, they're not going to do the horrible things that, um, you know, that the coalition are, are promising, but they're not really promising an alternative. So I'd hope to see at the very least that they'd really stand firm on things like no activity test, um, you know, no change to BBF funding, and I think there's already been suggestions that they will say no change to BBF funding. Yeah. But also, you know, what I'd love to see them say is, you know, early education is every child's right. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, and I think there's, a, there's an opportunity and, and I think I would have liked to have seen that in the last parliament. So there was, you know, three years when they were very much down and on the ropes where they can. Jenny Macklin did some really interesting social policy work that touched on early childhood but didn't really sort of delve into it. I think there's a there's a big opportunity and for, for Labor to sort of lead the, the public debate and, the, and and sort of move some of the move some of the work on that space. And my hope is that in, with everything being a bit tenuous, that they've got a bit of an opportunity to be a little bit brave. And I guess we'll have to see where we go. Well, I think it's going to be a very interesting. I mean, we we're going to be touching on this topic fairly regularly. I think because I mean, there's no we've got no current dates for when legislation is likely to go back. We, you know, Senator Birmingham hasn't really talked early childhood much except in say except to say basically pass our cuts please and everyone sort of again politely said we'll probably not um but we'll definitely be keeping keeping focus on that as we go forward yeah um so our second and final topic for the podcast uh is again a much a much less fun one but and again this will probably be my Significant contribution of the podcast. I think this is a discussion that needs to be had in the sector, and it needs to be something that we take really seriously, which is uh, children in uh, immigration detention, uh, both in Australia and in our Australian-funded and run uh, overseas, uh, so island detention facilities on Nauru. Um, so about last, so about two weeks ago, as we record this, there was a very large leak of files from the Guardian website, which sort of detailed in very specific and graphic detail the experience of children and young people uh, in those Australian detention facilities on Nauru. Now, the stories themselves, apart from being detailed and, and actual incident reports reported by organisations like Save the Children uh, to the security guards running the operation, we, we already knew how bad it was. So it's it's the hope is that this sort of kicks off a public debate, but it, it really fascinates me is that we, we actually already knew this and we've still allowed it to happen. So the stats as they stand now, there are currently 49 children under the age of 18 in uh, on the Manus Island facility. There are also I, almost three... Liam, I think we did already know, but it always did. surprises me how much people respond... Well, it doesn't surprise me. People respond to the individual stories of individual people, yeah. in this case, individual children. And when you've read some of those reports, like, you know, a child wanting to urinate and a guard shining a torch, you know, to yeah. see what she was doing and the child simply, you know, no longer being able to urinate as she was squatting on the earth, you yeah. know. 
Yeah. Like, that's just... It's horrendous. So I find it really interesting, and Lisa, it would be really interesting from your perspective, external to the sector. I'll admit to some frustration and challenge with how little this is discussed in in the sector. And I don't think it's a case of, look, I think the early childhood sector in general, we, look, we're mandated to have a focus on children's rights. It is embedded in the national quality framework. It's embedded in the early years learning framework, even if... Uh, the Early Childhood Australia Code of Ethics, which I know not every organisation signs up to or follows, but is probably the premier ethical responsibility document in our sector, you know, pretty clearly says that we need to, you know, be, be clear on this issue. I think some of it is, I mean, I'm always a bit surprised by the lack of just general interest in sort of politics and policy and media, but this just seems like such an obvious thing for me for the sector to, to rile up on and get involved and and to sort of take a stand, you know, I don't see, you know, big organisations sort of making really clear statements on this. What's your sort of view, sort of external-ish to the sector and why that is? Look, I think it's, I think it's a few things, but one that always strikes me is that people think if we took this up, we would have to talk to the children in our centres about this mm. and we can't raise political issues in our centres because um, because parents wouldn't like it. And I think that kind of comes back to a bit of the service as a business, as you know, yeah. providing a service to clients. But I also think it is that for... That's the negative side of it. The yeah. positive side of it, I think, is that I think it just hurts educators so much yeah. to think of children being treated this way when they look at the children in their centres who, yeah, sure, some children in some centres, uh, you know, like come from families that are not as nurturing as one would want. But the the extreme deprivation that's being done in our name, just people just want to shut it out because it, it hurts too much to them for them to think of it happening to children yeah. Yeah. The engagement with children's faith is really interesting, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll table here for anyone who reads my stuff or looks at me on Twitter is that I'm fairly endlessly going on about this issue. You know, I work in a management role with four early childhood centres, and we don't do specific work with children in this space. We've had lots of discussions about it, and I do. I am. I always think we have to err on the side of caution of. Um, how we involve children in that space and particularly um, there is of course the business service argument I try not to worry about that too much but the idea that at a very impressionable age we would I would hesitate to you know, ever ever impress my political views on on a child we've talked about you know we've done some meetings about you know maybe going to families first and then saying look here is a conversation we're going to be having with children and that may lead somewhere I think until we and I don't know if there's an answer to that, but what I what I think we can do is separate to children as educators and professionals working with, you know, as as the as professionals that work mostly with young children, that there's 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 actions and and things we can take as as groups of professionals that. Just but Liam, it comes to that thing we were talking about really early is that if if educators don't feel like they're the experts on children, yeah. why would they see that they have the right to talk about? children that yeah. are being victimised by our government. Yeah. And it's, it's like if you think of, if you take it to another kind of scenario and say 
if this was happening to um, to animals, yeah, like yeah. let's talk about you know abuse of animals overseas or on our ships, right? Who stands up for them? People like the RSPCA yeah, yeah. because that's an advocacy body for animals. So, okay, who are the big advocacy bodies for for children in Australia and what are they saying? How are they taking the lead on this? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, that's probably a good segue, Lisa, just to, I mean, this is obviously not a discussion we can solve or say anything, but I think we're, you know, we'll continue to, this is a really important part of the, for my, in my view, which is why it's in this, uh, I've added it to the topic list today. I think it's something we have to know about and, and be involved And can I in, just congratulate yeah. you, Liam, because for people who don't know, Liam set up a, recently set up a, um, a simple letter writing exercise <laughs> for educators in the sector. It took a few seconds to add your name to it and then he printed out all those letters individually that people had signed, put them in envelopes and sent them off to, who did they go to? They went to Malcolm Turnbull and to the Prime Minister and Peter Dutton, the Immigration Minister. And now it's a really small scale action. I, I, I'm still a bit old fashioned. I think, you know, writing a letter and actually sending it off works. But, you know, what I'm hoping is that, not necessarily that, but there is a sort of catalyst or movement within the sector to take note and think about the things we can do. And before, you know, we wrap up on this topic, what I, if, I, it is really easy to feel helpless and, and when they said, and I remember the morning of the Nauru files um, coming out, feeling really helpless, saying, what, what can we possibly do? But, you know, if you're in that position and wondering what to do, I really recommend uh, two, two particular organisations you should uh, check out just by Googling them and you can either, you know, donate. Um, or volunteer your time to support them. One is the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, which work with um, refugees uh, of all ages, um, and they do some fantastic advocacy work. But specifically for children, I'd really recommend Chill Out, which is C-H-I-L Out, um, and they focus specifically on um, advocacy and support for children and um, in detention, including in community detention here in Australia. So they're two organisations I'd really recommend sort of getting behind. Um, and and, and also letter writing, you know, you can, even yeah. though your particular letter writing thing, we've sat with politicians who've said that the best advocacy that they've ever had is handwritten letters yeah. sent by individual people. So yeah. if anyone's listening who's in Peter Dutton's electorate, <laughs> you know, or Malcolm Turnbull's electorate, I can't imagine many child care educators being able to live in Malcolm Turnbull's <laughs> electorate, but Peter Dutton's might be another thing. Just send yeah. him a letter yeah. Tell him that, you know, you don't think children should be locked up and that all children should be brought back to Australia. Absolutely. Well, that half an hour went very quickly, Lisa. We could probably wrap it on, wherever <laughs> on forever. But, um, look, we hope you enjoyed the, the first issue. As I said, we... I'm a bit of a fan of structure with podcasts, so we'll be we'll be sort of continuing on. We'll be doing you know two to three topics um, each you know fortnight slash week, depending on how often we can sort of get over the interwebs and get this recorded. But um, we really appreciate you listening to us. If you've um, enjoyed, look, this is a very small, uh, amateurly put together podcast, but as we said, it is you know the first of its kind for early childhood education in Australia. So if you want to support us or like what we do, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, you can head to iTunes and rate and review us, which really uh, sort of bumps us up on the, the rankings, particularly in Australia, which means other people, um, early childhood professionals and other people can find us. Um, I'm going to, Lisa doesn't even know about this yet, but I'm going to drop it right oh, now. No. We have, we have a, the, the podcast has its own Twitter handle. So we are at 
Oz Early Ed, all one word, so just the the, the name of the podcast, all that at. But um, you can also find us individually on various parts of the internet. So where can people find you, Lisa? Um, on Twitter at Lisa J Bryant, or and on Facebook. And if you're an early childhood educator and want to, um, uh, yeah, be part of my world, I always accept all educators onto my Facebook page. Oh, I'm far less nice on Facebook. I don't use it hugely <laughs> often and I, I only had people I know, which is not many, but um, I'm far more active on Twitter at Liam McNicholas um, and I also uh, occasionally post lengthy rants on things that make me cranky at liammcnicholas.com. But um, we really thank you for tuning into our first one and please you know, share us with your colleagues and um, other people if you liked what we heard and Lisa hopefully we'll be back again in a week or two to and possibly as I said with some special guests if we're very very lucky but um, yeah thanks for joining us thank you good night everyone